Once again, a packed show in this week's Emerging Cricket Podcast. In no particular order, we've got the Kubuka Tournament, the ACC Women's T20 Challenge League in Uganda, Dutch Super League action, and we pay tribute to the retiring Peter Saylor. But first, a shout out to our friends at Patreon. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. As always, plenty to talk about on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Hello and welcome in again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I am sounding a little bit hoarse and it's not because of our rowdy Sunday adventure, <laughs> uh, you know, enjoying a Sunday afternoon in the inner west of Sydney with the rest of the Emerging Cricket clan. Uh, a little bit under the weather this week, so I will let my partner do quite a bit of the talking this week. I'm with Nick Skinner to talk all things Emerging Cricket. Tim is uh, heading home. Back to Vanuatu and uh, a full calendar of events this week as he gets back into the thick of Vanuatu cricket. But Nick, how are you? Good catching up twice during last week. My body is yet to recover. Some of it was alcohol-induced, some of it wasn't. But uh, it was good to see you and Nishad and and a number of uh, people in the inner west. Uh, How did you pull up on the Monday morning? (laughs) I'd work at uh, six on the Monday morning, so... That was why I left early, but it still was not the funnest uh, shift I've ever had, uh, put it that way. But um, yeah, good good to see you guys. Unfortunately, I missed Nish, but uh, got to meet some of Tim's Hong Kong friends, which are an interesting bunch and a bit of a sort of world's collide, seeing well, sort of like a snapshot of, of Tim from about sort of five or six years ago, which was uh, yeah quite, quite an interesting experience. But uh, yeah, lovely bunch of people and yeah, some good fun uh, down at the courthouse in, uh, in Newtown. If anyone has Tim as a Facebook friend, he posted photos of hanging out with everyone in the three weeks. And uh, he got around. He knows mm. a few people. Uh, the man's contact list, the Rolodex is huge. Uh, <laughs> Rolodex. So, yes. Do they even still make those? I hope so. They, I like the look of them. I think I was a little bit too late. Yeah, it might be like a typewriter thing where, where you just have them as like a aesthetic thing than a, a practical yes <laughs> yes but if you do go and look through tim's photos uh yeah he knows a lot of people and was quite grateful that he managed to to squeeze us in on our adventure plenty of chat uh in regards to emerging cricket as well and a huge shout out to everyone who submitted questions on last week's show when we got together for the mailbag uh managed to answer all of them in a special extended show and if you are a a page. Not only did your questions get prioritised in that, you got first dibs on the show. Uh, just as a thank you, let's jump into some cricket action that's gone on. And again, we, we've struggled to keep up with everything on both the women's and the men's side. We'll start on the women's side of things. Tanzania taking out the Kwabuka event in Africa, uh, in Rwanda, of course, at the Kahunga Stadium and the outskirts of Kigali. A fantastic tournament. We uh, spoke last week about Tanzania doing the early running and they remained undefeated in the tournament. Too strong for Uganda, particularly with the ball. Uganda probably lamenting perhaps a a lack of runs at times, but the likes of Fatima Kabasu, Mohamedi as well was excellent, got the job done. And uh, ultimately, they can lay claim and and boast as uh, Kwabuka champions, beating uh, some pretty fancy rivals and a couple of uh, fly-ins from... uh, outside of the continent of Africa. 
Well, yeah, like we said last week and, and leading up to it, it, it was a very entertaining tournament and it was good to see uh, some intercontinental, uh, some matchups between you know, Brazil and, and Germany and, and some African teams and just speaks to the strength of the African region that, yeah, with Brazil and Germany finishing uh, sixth and seventh after their respective playoffs at, at the end of the tournament. So, yeah, I guess the fact that there are so many African teams who've beaten them comprehensively just goes to show that um, the the African region is very strong. Um, I think probably Uganda would be a bit disappointed with third place, if we're honest. Uh, they, they, got, they won their playoff with a, a pretty comprehensive victory over Rwanda. But they, I mean, looking at the, the wicket tallies, five of the top six wicket takers are from Uganda. Yeah. With all with 11 wickets or more. Akonsi Aweko, always good with her leg spin. Patricia Malamikia. Janet Mbabazi is always reliable. So, you know, all name, names like this are performing with the ball and picking up a lot of wickets. But when you look across on the batting side of things, there's Kevin Aweino and basically nobody else who, who stood up. And this, is, this has been a recurring problem and they don't have uh, the ability to put enough on the board. And, and you know, teams, teams are getting the total sort of five, six, seven wickets down. They are managing to get over the line because the Ugandans just don't quite have enough on the board. And uh, so I guess... Uh, you know, on the other hand, you look at Tanzania and, and the fact that um, Fatima Kabasu was playing so well, that just allowed them to have that, you know, that one player who was able to carry them. And, and it just shows how much of a difference, I guess, it can make having a slightly more reliable batting lineup or, or even, you know, Kenya, who are in the final, um, out of out of the 12 sixes hit at the tournament, 11 of them came from Kenyan batters, uh, seven from Quintor Abel and four from uh, Sarah Watoto. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, yep. Um, so I think this is something that a lot of these teams, you know, Nigeria, Rwanda, Botswana for sure, like all, all these setups are going to have to sort of look at where are they going to find someone who can fill that role with the bat, who's going to be able to provide a bit of resistance. And because I guess, I mean, it's, it's a recurring thing with women's cricket really is that the, the, the bowling sort of looks after itself in the nets and... The batting is is the tricky part, and there were quite a lot of you know there, there were some runouts that were a bit sloppy, and there you know sort of shots that you know nice looking shots that went straight to fielders and, and that kind of thing, which to me indicates a lot of a lot of net practice, but not enough matches on the actual <laughs> on the cricket field. Yeah, and your point is made obvious when you look at the scorecards of both of Uganda's defeats to Kenya and uh, then to Tanzania. They made ninety six for eight against Kenya to be chased down, albeit in the last over and with only three wickets in hand. And then when you look at, at Tanzania, beating them by five wickets and 15 balls remaining in a successful chase of 107. And that was in spite of Kevin Owino making an unbeaten 55 in that particular innings. Well, yeah, no support. And then going back onto the other side, Fatima Kabasu only made 13 with the bat, but Tanzania were able to contribute all the way down the order. Mtai 26, Mohamedi 23, mm. Amari 24 not out. They were able to kind of grind out that victory. So definitely a lesson for the the Ugandans, the, the Victoria Pearls. Uh, were successful in, in Nepal, beating Nepal in that series that they had a little while ago and we'll talk about the Nepal women's team in a in a second when we talk about the ACC women's T20 but again yeah uh history is written by the winners and Tanzania here again going back to to Germany and and Brazil and Nick you made the point about this is that a number of players actually hung around and stayed in the uh Rwanda women's elite league 
as well. And an interesting visit by a UK diplomat as well. Quite an eventful uh, week and a bit in uh, in Kubuka. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it just goes to show that um, the, the tournament's uh, you know, getting bigger and better and, and gaining a bit of attention around the region and, and, and indeed around the world. I know the UK is uh, particularly interested in Rwanda at the moment for um, perhaps some, some less savoury reasons with their um, refugee deal, but uh, this is uh, probably not the, the format to discuss that. Um, but yes, uh, Lord Tariq Ahmed, Baron of Wimbledon, who's some sort of, I think, an envoy to the Commonwealth or, or something along those lines. It's a bit... I mean, these these English titles. He's some kind of life peer in the House of Lords. Can't keep up. I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, they they have their own thing going on. But the the point is that he's a, he's a government representative who's been sent down to Rwanda to uh, look into this tournament, which is attracting. Uh, yeah, attention around the the region and and around the world, and it's a it's an interesting example, I think, of um, of sports diplomacy, and um, I guess the UK is also, as well as the recent deal, putting in a lot of money into development and, and aid work in Rwanda and, and other parts of uh, of East Africa. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting to see Kuboka being a, you know, a piece of the puzzle in, in that kind of international diplomacy. And, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we see more of it. And African cricket at the moment is flying. We know that Uganda are hosting the Challenge League leg at the moment as well, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But to stay with... Women's cricket will move to Asia in the ACC Women's T20 competition. 10-team tournament, top two qualifier for the Women's T20 Asia Cup in October. And with Thailand already in that tournament, it means that there will be three associate teams in a boon for the emerging game in that region. A number of the usual candidates standing up and being counted in this tournament. UAE are undefeated but have been curtailed slightly by no result. Hong Kong, Nepal and Malaysia are all guaranteed to make the semis and as the at the time of the of recording it would be a miracle uh should UAE not be going through as well. A few names again standing up for their respective teams. Winnie Durasingham as well uh is a name that we heard a lot during uh the Fairbreak Global Invitational. Uh once again in the runs, averaging over fifty at the time of recording. I thought Andrew Gurung was a little bit quiet with the ball for Bhutan, but still very solid. Uh if anything Teams are probably just seeing her off, knowing of her threat. Mazalisa for Malaysia, Mariko Hill. Again, a number of players who excel in this sort of ecosystem of, in this level of the game, in the, in the women's associate level of the game in Asia. Once again, pulling the strings and ultimately pulling through for their respective teams, Nick. Yeah, I mean, talk about Guram. She had a, an economy rate of four and a half, so she's still been pretty tidy, even though she wasn't necessarily taking the wickets. Uh, Sonam picked up four wickets uh, as well against Nepal, where Bhutan kept them to nine for 94, which again goes back to our, our discussion about the um, kind of the, the bowling often is the strongest side for, for emerging women's teams. And, and Bhutan's bowling throughout the tournament really has been quite solid. They just have a very, very fragile batting lineup that just hasn't been able to you know provide any any kind of resistance and i guess this is this is where just to go on a bit of a, a digression you know even looking across to a full member like like south africa and their challenges of developing black african players uh, in the batting lineup you know that they, they have plenty of bowlers but they don't they don't have that many you know there's there's obviously there's Temba Bavuma, who, who's the skipper now in, in Whitepool cricket, but aside from that, they have struggled to produce black African batters simply because a, a lot of the cricket that comes through in South Africa is still the, the product of uh, you know relatively well-off families or, or you know even these elite private schools where they have access to the facilities and the equipment. Batting is a skill that 
is kind of expensive to, to get really good at, whereas bowling, you just need a ball and, and something to aim at, you know? So, I think that's kind of being shown um, more especially at associate level and, and, you know, women's associate level where they don't necessarily have the money to, to, to provide the equipment and, and the training facilities to improve their batting to the standard that they would like, whereas, like we are saying, bowling is, is a lot easier to do on a budget. Um, so, I think that's going to be a recurring problem and things like this Rwandan Women's Elite League that has a number of international participants can only help and I mean it's a pretty small tournament I think it's run over sort of three or four days with uh, only three teams but things like this getting just more matches just getting more cricket under your belt that's going to be the difference really because these teams have they have athletes they have players who are able to you know that they have the skills but they just need to get a lot of cricket into them And, and it's one of those things where you can't really produce batters on the cheap, and that's why it, it's such a, a big difference and a big disadvantage. Um, but to, to look at Malaysia, who do actually have a lot of these facilities, you know, Winifred Durasingham and uh, Masalisa's provided some good support, so their batting has actually looked pretty good. And this was after they were struggling a bit in the under-19s. So hopefully they can translate, I guess, some of the raw talent that exists in the under-19s into the finished product as, as they go through. But yeah, looking at those semi-finals, Hong Kong, Nepal, Malaysia, UAE slash, I mean, Qatar, if <laughs> if they pull off a massive up- upset, but I think I'm pretty safe in saying that's not going to happen. Um, usual suspects, you would think UAE are going through, but then that other slot is wide open because UAE um, and Thailand, who are already in the main event, have been the dominant teams at this level. But behind them, there's a bit of a logjam. And, I mean, we know Nepal have struggled a lot over the last little while. Uh, Malaysia are playing at home, so they might be a good candidate. And um, But, yeah, good to see Hong Kong as well putting together a a better performance. And, um, you know, they they have struggled a little bit of late in the Asian region. So if they can um, push through and and make it to uh, to, to the Asia Cup, I think that would be a huge boost for their cricket as well. Yeah, the point you make about match experience or match practice and the batting and bowling disparity of talent, I think is not only a constant theme of of women's associate cricket, but it's a common theme of associate cricket as a whole, especially from this level to the elite side, looking at at the way England and, and say the Netherlands are playing in Super League action at the moment, you can kind of see the consequences or the repercussions of that repetition and match practice in its entirety. And it's sometimes masked by one or two really good individual performances but you know at this level when it's a systemic thing this is why the likes of of Nepal at times have been bowled out for not many you know 11 players having a bad day with the bat isn't a coincidence it's it's uh it's it's systematic it's something that happens when you know the pieces aren't put together and we're seeing what can be done when you are someone like Malaysia or even Thailand at the next level where once things are put in place, things are just made a little bit easier. And a team such as Bahrain, for example, entered this tournament, I think, for the first time. They've come off just making their own women's league as of late last year. So they're already profiting from that match practice and, and the experience that players get at a domestic level in a domestic league. And then moving from a golf cup competition into something like an ACC women's T20 Championship. So the progress is being made. It's just a case of, yeah, Nick, as you make the the point of match practice and match repetition, and it's something that 
you know, all of these teams are, are striving and desperate for, but we know between the resources and the abilities and just the calendar, it's it's made close to impossible. So, you know, if anyone's out there willing to, to kind of help out or, you know, the, the power brokers of international cricket can, can see what the potential is, you would you would hope there'd be some changes there being made. Although, you know, judging by uh, some ICC comments in the last couple of weeks about women's cricket, it doesn't seem <laughs> overall very, very positive, although I'm being a little bit facetious there. Yeah, and, and just on the, the point about the Golf Cup you mentioned that uh, was, was run back in March, Qatar seemed to have improved. You know, they, they beat Oman handily here and Oman are kind of struggling after they finished second uh, to, to the UAE in that Golf Cup. So, it's, um, yeah, interesting to see Qatar having a, a better showing here. And, um, I mean, it's hard to know how strong these teams necessarily are because there's a lot of kind of turnover in, in, in the teams, but uh, good to see competition improving. And, you know, if, if those golf teams can keep playing each other and, uh, you know, driving each other forward, I, th- I think that'll, yeah, only bode well for the Asia region as well. There was a saying at my high school, Nick, if we all succeed, we all succeed. <laughs> Just talking about having the, the competitiveness across across the group and that builds strength. And we, we're, we're seeing it, you know, come to fruition in Africa with Kabuka going on, well, over the last week, and it's starting to happen in both the western and eastern sides of Asia, which is good to see. And Thailand being probably a beacon for a lot of these teams, looking looking up to you know what can be done in that space. So again, it's a promising time, uh, and I'm sure we'll see even more competition like this in future iterations of the ACC Women's T20 Championship. And yeah, there are a couple of front runners, admittedly, and we've seen the progress of UAE and Malaysia that we've spoken about, but there's no reason why it can't be someone else in, in the next cycle, perhaps. Let's move on to Challenge League action in Uganda uh, to move back into Africa and to talk about that uh, League B of the Challenge League, featuring obviously the hosts in Uganda, Hong Kong, Jersey, Kenya, Italy, and Bermuda. Now, at the time of the recording, Uganda is still ahead on 12 points in top spot over Hong Kong with 11 points, but Hong Kong have a game in hand. Kenya, Italy, and Bermuda also have a game in hand. Jersey, eight games and on 10 points. It's been an intriguing Challenge League series from what we've seen so far, and people will have watched a couple more games as this show goes live this week, but Jersey came out of the blocks fast, beating both the hosts uh, rather emphatically, and then Kenya off the back of an electric opening partnership and then being too good for Italy as well. The opening partnership of Harrison Carline and, and Nick Greenwood, they put on 77 against Uganda, with Greenwood making 80 in the end off his own bat, and then the opening pair again, they put on 81 for the first wicket and just 10.5 overs against Kenya. Josh Lawrenson made 100 in the last game as well. Chuggy Perchard's in the wickets. Anthony Hawkins K with a 5 for Dominic Blompier as well with the 5 for so... A number of individuals are stepping up for the Jersey side who are looking to sort of make their push into the uh, the next phase, the Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff. We're roughly halfway through League B of the Challenge League. Uganda's still ahead. Uh, we'll talk about Hong Kong in a second with uh, the batting seemingly looking stronger and Kinshit Shah in the runs again. But I suppose we'll start with the hosts, Nick, who have struggled a little bit, just a little falter after being unbeaten in the Oman leg. Now just winning one of, of three matches in, in their home leg it's uh it's a strange one after a strong tour of namibia where they jagged games in both a a t20i and a 50 over fixture i don't want to say we didn't see this coming but 
I was a little bit taken aback by just how dominant a couple of the other teams were against them. Yeah, it's interesting. They were they were looking good against Namibia. They um, looking good off the field. They've just announced a new sponsor with uh, Plascon Paints. I think I believe it's a paint company with you know unveiling their new jersey and you know it's all looking rosy. And then they they run into Jersey and they run into Hong Kong, especially against Hong Kong. They were three for eighty and then they got bowled out for ninety four, which is I mean <laughs> that's that's just a hell of a collapse. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's a bit of a, a redux of 2017, the World Cricket League three, where they, um, they came in looking, uh, looking strong and then they, they ended up getting relegated, uh, finishing fifth out of sixth ahead of only, uh, Malaysia. So yeah, I don't know. Something about playing at home, maybe they, they, uh, they dominated over in Oman, um, winning all five matches, uh. But uh, yeah, now this. Uh, although I will say, you know, as a spectator, this is uh, this is kind of good because it, it evens up the playing field a lot, and you know, really throws wide open this group where we thought, you know, Uganda might be on the on the brink of running away with it. But uh, now, with everyone sort of picking up points, Jersey, Hong Kong looking good, you know, Uganda with with their the points on the board, you know, you, you will have potentially a sort of two three way race maybe even four way if Kenya can pick their you know get their act together for for that one spot at the top of the at the top of the table and, and a chance to qualify for the world cup so um from from that perspective jersey have done all the right things and and the most impressive thing is you know it's been different people contributing obviously greenwood um has has done well in 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 two games um Carline getting good starts uh Lawrence with with an unbeaten ton uh Julius Samaraura you didn't even mention yeah. 6 for 32 against Italy player of the match in that game as well I think yes which is you know uncommon when somebody scores a century so well done him but yeah I mean Jersey it's sort of an interesting contrast with Bermuda in in that you know they're both relatively small island nations with with a good cricket culture but not so many um you know just inhabitants in general um but uh yeah Bermuda I believe have not won a match so far in this, in this challenge league whereas Jersey are now they've turned it around and they're challenging for the top spot um just jumping over to Hong Kong briefly they've they've looked good Kinchit Cha came back in the team he wasn't playing against uh, Namibia over in that series but yeah it, it's quite interesting I, I did say last week that Namibia is the kind of team that uh, will make you pay if if you you know give them a chance whereas Hong Kong playing at this level uh, sort of a lot more even and and, and I guess Namibia is just a, a better team so there's that but yeah it is it is strange that Uganda I don't know yeah they 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 looked they looked a lot stronger against Namibia, uh, whereas Hong Kong, I guess, you know, they just got the rust out of the system and <laughs> now they're now they're playing well. But um, yeah, I mean, other teams, Kenya, I, yeah, I don't know. I think they'll need to pick up a, a little bit. But yeah, Italy are struggling. I mean, this is all this is all kind of a bit speculative because only half the matches have been played. But uh, yeah, at the moment, Jersey making the running, Bermuda are down at the bottom, and everyone else, it's all all kind of up in the air in the middle there. Yeah, I think we could put a big red line through Bermuda, unfortunately. Quite a turnover of players. I think five new individuals featuring in this Challenge League series alone. Italy don't quite have the depth across the entire 11 to probably mount a challenge. Kenya would think, you would think, might have a slightly better chance, but I, I don't think the numbers lie. So I think at this point, we could pretty much make a safe bet that this will be a, a three-way horse race for that top spot it's such a brutal tournament you know one team from each of the, the groups of six teams going to a cricket world cup 
qualifier playoff to then play you know the bottom four league two teams just to get to another qualifier it, it's certainly not easy uh and i'm sure that the road is is long and, and arduous but yeah very intrigued we're roughly halfway through this this challenge league uh on, on the b side group a with the second leg uh starting from next month is another one we'll look with great interest and of course nick you have not only vested canadian interests we have Tim is the CEO of uh, of another team in that tournament, and both of you will be there to watch it. But yeah, to be a little bit more impartial in in League B, I I I honestly couldn't tell you who wins that group. Looking at it now, there's every chance you can to turn it around. Hong Kong are probably the form side, but you know the way that everyone from the Jersey team is standing up and contributing, and with that electric opening partnership, it's just. That's just such a point of difference, that opening partnership alone. You know, not many teams can go at a rate of knots like the the Jersey opening pair can. Maybe Hong Kong at a push. So, again, looking at it with great interest and, you know, we might have a little bit more of a clearer idea at the end of this particular leg and after everyone listens to this podcast and, you know, we look stupid for recording three days ahead. (laughs) For me to come back with three uh, big wins and and we all look silly. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Shall we talk about the Dutch-England series? Because it hasn't necessarily been the, the brightest uh, in, in emerging cricket, just not only with the, the result of the first one day international in particular, but also the uh, the untimely retirement of, of Peter Saylor uh, from international cricket, the Dutch captain citing uh, persistent back problems as the reason for, for his retirement. It was sad waking up and, and reading that news, as we all did late last week, and a great serviceman to the game uh, in the Netherlands, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in great depth and, and some of his you know great moments over his time. But to look at the one-day series to begin, uh, the first match, not pretty reading as an emerging cricket fan, England posting the highest one-day international total of all time 498 for four uh with the netherlands actually putting up a decent fight in response admittedly not getting anywhere close to that target especially but making 266 with the bat three centuries for england phil salt 122 off 93 balls david Milan 125 of 109 balls and then joss butler with a blitz of 162 not out of 70 deliveries ridiculous seven fours and 14 sixes the traveling support for england was good in uh, Amsterdam, we'll probably talk about that. There was a little bit of controversy as well uh, with our, our man, Bertus de Jong, on the ground, uh, clarifying a, a couple of uh, mistruths that were posted around on the internet. But it, it's not pretty reading. Boisafen going for over 10 and over. Shane Snadel, albeit getting his, his cousin out, Jason Roy. <laughs> that, that was fun, yeah. <laughs> for one of seven deliveries. And also, Sailor picking up the wicket of his captaining counterpart in Owen Morgan. Uh, the two go a long, long, long way back, and we posted that photo of them on socials with thanks to Amber De Groot, who had that uh, in the archives, both playing, I think it was the under, might have been the under-15 European Championships somewhere along the mid-2000s. Don't want to get the years wrong there, but that was uh, a pretty cool story. And then in the second ODI, things were a little bit more competitive. England winning ultimately by six wickets and with just under five overs to spare, rain-affected game. And in the third one, International, ah, the beauties of editing. I can splice this in on Friday afternoon. Uh, 50s for Max O'Dowd, Scott Edwards, and a maiden half-century for Baz Delader for the Dutch weren't enough to avoid another defeat with their 244 chase down in just 30.1 overs. Uh, where do we want to start here? 
well-travelled England fans uh, complaining of no water and uh, nowhere to hide from the vitamin D enriching sun. Although Bird has kind of put it to sh- uh, put it to bed that you know there was enough resources there. It was just a case of English people getting drunk at ten o'clock in the morning before the game even started. But <laughs> Bird knows all about that. Yeah, if we focus on the cricket for now, I mean. <sighs> I want to say there's no shame in, in what happened to them in the first one-day international. I mean, people have short memories, but England put up 480 against Australia, I think, in 2018. Um, they put up 440 against Pakistan, I think, in 2016. So they've got a reputation of doing this. When the wicket is flat and the ball doesn't move, they could put up a ridiculous score, and they and they do it at a ridiculous clip. Uh, I don't think it really matters who was put in front of them on that particular occasion. There's going to be times where, where that happens and England just get away. They are world champions for a reason, and they've got a knack of doing that. Tom Cooper came back for uh, the Dutch as well, and, and runs were scored in that in that chase. Scott Edwards, with, with 72 not out of 56 balls in that particular game, he's taking over the captaincy as well. So... Oh, and a, and a 50 for Max O'Dowd in that game as well. So, again, I want to say there are positives. And, you know, sometimes when you just cop England on a day like that, you just have to kind of sit there and and, and just kind of applaud what, what's going on in front of you. Yeah, I mean, like you say, they're the best ODI team in the world for a reason. Uh, they're the champions for a reason. They, they're just very, very good at ODI cricket. And especially in a wicket like this, which, I mean, maybe we can talk about that um, as to why... They are playing on such a flat track. You know, the, the, the VRA grounds team, for some reason, have, have decided to provide a road for the English batting lineup, which, yeah, is, is a very strange decision. Not like Kampong, I'll tell you that for free. Well, yeah, you know, um, what, and you're thinking back, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, Sri Lanka put up 440-odd against the Netherlands as well. I, I think South Africa put up a huge score against them uh, a little while back as well. You know why does why does VRA keep doing this? Why do they keep you know that when they're playing against a high-profile opponent, they instead of playing to the strengths of the of the Dutch bowling unit and and the Dutch batters who are a bit more used to playing on uh, you know less batting-friendly decks, uh, they they roll out just a, a total road um, and which allows the kind of visiting. Um, I don't know. I mean, they're being hospitable, I suppose, <laughs> yeah, allowing the visiting team to, to really get going. Uh, Jai Saria did it back in the day and, and you know, Joss Butler did it this time. But uh, yeah, very strange. Uh, you know, if, if you, you mentioned Kampong, if they played these matches at Kampong, I think the Dutch would have a better chance of winning. You know, you play on a, on a tricky deck, you know, 230 plays 210 or something along those lines. I mean, that's probably the Netherlands' best chance of winning because <laughs> there is absolutely no way they're ever going to chase down 500 to win an ODI against England. So, you know, forget about that. And I don't know, like, you think about that when, when Scotland beat them, they, they put up 360 against England, which is, I mean, that's a hard chase even for England. And, and so Scotland sort of beat them at their own game, but that was because Scotland have the batting to do that, whereas the the Dutch batting lineup is pretty fragile and the bowling is their strength, even at being, you know, somewhat under strength uh with, with county uh county omissions and, and, and whatnot. Um the the bowling is still their trump card. So surely you would think if you're trying to win if you're trying to take Super League points off England and you know we've got to remember that these ODIs, they're not just a random bilateral. They are they are there are there are World Cup qualification points at stake. 
So, if you're trying to get those points against England, why aren't you trying to, you know, maximise your chances of winning? It's just quite strange. I don't know. It reminds me of... Um, this is a bit of an <laughs> maybe an esoteric comparison, but um, I, I read a Batman uh, comic book once where it was sort of Batman was getting older and the, the you know, the new criminals were these sort of young gangsters or whatever and, and he got beaten up. Where is this going? <laughs> he got like absolutely beaten up by one in a fight because he's, you know, he's sort of in his 50s and he's a bit older and, and he, he can't keep up anymore. So, the next time he fights him, he, he plans it out and he meets the guy in a muddy, swampy area where the guy's speed is negated because he can't, he can't move as quickly. And so, you know, Batman's experience and, and uh, you know, gadgets and whatnot uh, allow him to win the second fight because he planned ahead. So, <laughs> to, to, to get back to the Dutch cricket team, I think they need to take that kind of approach and think, well, there's no way in hell they're going to beat England at, you know, chasing down a huge score on a road because that's, that's just England's strength. But maybe they could, you know, winkle out a victory against England on a tricky pitch uh, with, with some crafty bowling and, and a low score. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, all that, all that is to say England are just very, very good at ODI cricket. So, it would be a long shot either way. But the, the Dutch certainly aren't playing to their strengths. Yeah, I completely agree. It'd be interesting to see what would have happened if, you know, they put up a, a deck that was a little bit closer to what patrons see in times of uh, top class of cricket and yeah the red carpet for, for England is just a, a bit of an inferiority complex sort of thing there you would like to think any comments on uh, on the lager louts just getting on it way too early in the day to be uh, to be properly treated in, in the VRA ground I, I think <laughs> Bert has had to come to the rescue of uh, the KNCB and, and the Dutch cricket fraternity putting up you know these people as hosts, ridiculous crowds, mind you, at VRA, which was good to see. But, but uh, yeah, uh, a few people took a took a liberty to the uh, bars opening uh, as early as they did. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have, I have a, a level of sympathy to VRA because obviously this is um, a lot more uh, <laughs> spectators than they're probably used to, and probably much rowdier spectators than they're they're used to uh, in in Dutch cricket. So, you know, th- th- that's a challenge. Um, I don't. I don't want to get too harsh on on the you know the the traveling England crowd. I think the the England supporters are you know they're they're essential to a lot of teams in terms of income and, and revenue and and providing that um, you know gate ticket money and and the um, as well as the concession sales. So you know it's it's a little bit sort of harsh to complain about them coming over to Amsterdam to have you know to have a fun weekend and, and you know sort of chiding them. For, for having too much fun, maybe. I don't know. But so I don't necessarily think that's the problem. I, I guess more the issue is just maybe that they would have, um, you know, they didn't quite have the patience to deal with the fact that they're at a, a ground that is, um, you know, most of the time, 100 people would be a good crowd at, at VRA. So I think both sides maybe could have a, a little bit of grace for, for the situation. Um, in, in terms of the atmosphere, though, was good. Um, I think this has been a, a good sort of exhibition for Dutch cricket um, and obviously a, a nice little uh, revenue booster with, with all the beer sales. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I just wish that they'd tried a bit harder to win or, or been a bit more strategic about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the sad news about Peter calling it a day. Uh, we knew he'd had 
troubles with his back over the last couple of years. Uh, it had plagued him, and obviously doing both quite a lot of bowling, running the team, and and his role now with the bat as well it was always going to be very difficult. But what a servant to Dutch cricket, taking over as captain uh, four years ago from from Peter Boren and playing in the team for well, I, th- I think he made his debut for the Netherlands and the NatWest Trophy in 2005 uh, to be able to play you know, for your country for 17 years is a testament to, to his ability and achievements and we know what his bowling's been like almost forever but his batting has come along or his batting came along in such a way that he started as a as a number 10, number 11 batter and by the end of his career he was you know, doing a job in, in the middle order. Some of the numbers you know, with the bat in one day international cricket probably don't tell you the story about how good Sailor ended up with the bat, but a couple of oh, incredible moments that the we can remember from an emerging cricket standpoint, and also against England, beating them both uh, in Bangladesh at the 2014 T20 World Cup, and of course that tournament opener in 2009, uh, dismissing Paul Collingwood doing the penguin dance that you know became <laughs> so fabled and so. I mean, if it happened in 2022, that would go viral and we'd see it on, you know, TikToks and, and Reels for, for days. But what a performer for, for the Netherlands and, and what a servant to the game. And, you know, to, to probably harp on his batting a little bit more, there was that what to this day might forever be the highest ever sixth wicket partnership in international intercontinental cop history uh, when he put on that, that big daddy partnership with, with Ben Cooper. I think it was for the sixth wicket in Hong Kong. Uh, made an unbeaten hundred of his own in that. So he's been everywhere. We've had him on the show. Uh, he's one of the most popular figures in, in the emerging game and, and we wish him all the best. But yeah, they're probably my favourite Sailor moments. And I'm sure I've stolen quite a few of yours, Nick. But if, you, if you've got a few more, feel free to, uh, to, to whack them in. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, as you say, Zayla, great servant of the game uh, of Dutch cricket. The Netherlands have been lucky to have a couple of really good captains in Peter Boren and Peter Saylor, who've both, in their own different ways, been um, you know, just so committed to Dutch cricket and, and really carried the side through some tough times, just with uh, great poise. And, I mean, yeah, poor old Peter Zayla, playing through a lot of back pain in the last couple of years, especially, and, and just trying to give everything for his team, but... Ultimately, the the body couldn't handle it, uh, which is is always a bit sad. And you know, it would have been nice for him to at least get to the maybe the World Cup uh, this year and and sort of go out on a bit of a high. But um, you know, that's not to be. Um, but yeah, I think probably I don't know. There's a lot of good Peter Zaylar moments. He's just a, an all round good guy. But I, I think I, I do I did like his batting in the um, that series that they won against Zimbabwe uh, back in 2019, where he just came in. In a couple of those games, and just absolutely whacked it, and you know they they looked, you know they were struggling a little bit. He just came in and absolutely whacked it, kept his head, smashed it straight down the ground a few times, got them over the line, no fuss, no worries. And that's just Peter Zeller. You know he comes in, does the job that the team needs, bats, bowls, does whatever's required, um, and, and gives his all for the team. And so he's just a great competitor, and um, yeah, he'll definitely be sorely missed in the um, in the in the emerging world. At that I think it was ninety six not out against Scotland and that T twenty I innings where they couldn't chase mm. down a mammoth Scotland total that was put up. Some of the hitting in that, you know, you, you completely forgot that once upon a time he was, you know, a, a I don't want to say a genuine tail ender, but definitely someone who would take up the final two spots in the in the batting order. But to look forward now, and Scott Edwards takes the captaincy, Gloveman 
a lot of international experience now. He's played in the international setup for quite a while now, but it's a tricky period now because they play in the T20 World Cup qualifier B in Zimbabwe uh, from the 11th of July. A new captain, Ryan Campbell, comes back into the fray, uh, you would think, for the tournament as well as coach. But yeah, it just... I'm interested to see where they kind of go from here because they, they probably need to rethink a couple of things now with Sailor no longer there. Uh, we already know that with the bat, they're struggling to probably put together a, a batting order and a batting lineup, which could safely say they'd be one of the strongest two teams out of that eight. So runs might be a little bit hard to come by now with, yeah, yet another batter, albeit an all-rounder missing from that side. Someone else comes through. Uh, there have been a couple of players who have, put their hand up in, in Super League cricket. But yeah, interesting to see what happens next month at the T20 World Cup qualifier, a different format under a new captain. Uh, they've got to hit the ground running, you know, if they want to qualify for, for this uh, for this upcoming tournament in Australia as well. Yeah, Edwards is um, Edwards is an interesting one. Possibly the only uh, current ODI player uh, born in Tonga. Um, I, I, I can't be bothered to check that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure in saying that. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's an intriguing choice. They've gone with uh, someone who's still only 25, so they'll probably get a, a good sort of you know 10 years or so out of him, uh, assuming all goes well. Which I mean, you know, what's associate cricket going to look like in 10 years' time? Uh, so yeah, he's got he's got a lot to work with. Um, he's got a lot to do, but he also has kind of a, a I guess a, a mandate to make the team his own and, and to take Dutch cricket in in a different direction. So. It'll be interesting to see uh, where he goes with that. Um, keepers captaining is sort of a um, it's not it's not it's not a hugely popular thing, but I guess they've had a couple of bowlers slash all rounders captaining as well, so um, doesn't have to always be a batter. Um, I, I don't know, Edwards. Yeah, as you say, there's a lot there's a lot for the Netherlands to kind of work out in terms of their team composition with you know Zayla going. They're they're a um, they're a left arm spinner short now, and with uh, Rula Vandermeer. Being, um, you know, his his availability being kind of patchy at best. Um, you know, where where do they go for the that spin option? Do they stick with maybe Blossovane? They've got Shreese Ahmed coming through, who's another leg spinner. So they've got that, you know, away from the right hander spin uh, option. But then, you know, the, the finger spin, the the trajectory from Zaylar, he, he's more of a kind of a strangling bowler, whereas Ahmed and and to an extent Blossovane are more kind of toss it up and and, and you know, tempt the batter. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go. The, the the middle order as well, as you say, Zayla, I mean, realistically, <laughs> he shouldn't be batting six, but a lot of the time he was just because uh, of a, a paucity of options. So, yeah, yeah, I, I'll be very interested to see what Ryan Campbell comes up with um, over the next little while. I think we've seen, we've seen uh, Floyd and Pringle coming into the Dutch squad, so that'll be uh, interesting to see how they go. So, that, that might provide a bit of a, a starch to the batting, but... Yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot of questions for this Dutch side, and, and hopefully they find some answers quickly, or, or they might be on the outer. Pleasure talking to you, Nicholas, about all things emerging cricket, as always. And to keep up with news and events from the Games New World, make sure to log on to EmergingCricket.com. And make sure you're subscribed to us wherever you are listening to the podcast. We'll speak to you next week on behalf of Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick. Enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are around the emerging cricket world.